have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they said. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard came to his foreman and he said, pay the workers their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and then go to the first. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have been borne the burden of the work of the day and in the heat of the day. But he answered to them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Did you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and leave. I want to give I want to give the one who was hired the last that I gave to you, the same that I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is God's word to us. Sean, um, the uh, the first thing that uh, that I was thinking about this week as I was preparing for the mission trip is um, is uh, the image that has stuck with me um, is is about a van. Um, and some of you have told this story. And if you went on the trip last year, remember we had this River Wards lend us their um, broken down van to help travel us around, uh, move the team around the city. Um, it's a van I've relied upon in my planning for transportation. And uh, it turns out that the city, uh, uh, Michael Black, who, who uh, from Liberty River Wards, called me and said, hey, the van's been impounded, um, so we may not have the van available for you. It's like, well, we're working on it. We're going to get the paperwork done. It's okay. I mean, it was wrongfully impounded to begin with. But anyway, they go through the rigmarole. They get all the paperwork done, city, state, the whole thing. Um, and, and they, they file the paperwork, like, great, we're good to go, let's go pick up the van, they go to the junkyard, and the junkyard's like, yeah, we crushed that van. <laughs> and you can only laugh because it's, it's just an absurd turn of events. You know, you do the thing right, you, you, you play the game, and the guy at the junkyard, who I imagine has a cigar on the side of his mouth, and, you know, that's not fair to junkyard people, but not that there's anything wrong with cigar, but... Um, Crush the van. And the reason I've been thinking about that in particular for this, as I've thought about this passage, is that um, it, it, so we sort of accept, all people, one level or another, we accept that bad things happen. Um, but there is something about grace, like grace, grace in our life as Christians. Um, grace is, is God's goodness toward us. It's so good. And yet, um, it's not just that the van was crushed. It's the it's the sense in which the world kind of still is against you, right? And, and so as Christians, we have this question of like, if grace is so good, why is life still so difficult? You know, we, I, I can accept that a van is crushed, but, but doesn't it seem like the cosmos are kind of still against me? And God, your grace is supposed to be sufficient and wonderful and all life-giving. So, 
So I, I just raise that to you. That's the question I hope for you to think about with me this morning as we go to this passage. If God's grace is so good, um, why, why do I still experience such anguish and pain at times, even in the midst of God's grace? Um, and so I would like to just point out just two things. Just want to talk briefly about um, the one of the reasons that life is still difficult, even as we walk in grace, um, is because grace has a certain offensiveness to it. And I just want to show you two parts of that offense, right? It's got, it's got uh, to borrow an old phrase, it's got heat and it's got light. Grace has heat and it has light. Um, that's the offense of grace. So, so let's, we'll get there, but just first let's walk through and see what the passage is doing um, that Sean read. Uh, the parable is sort of designed to provoke you as a listener. Um, you'll notice that there's sort of two progressions that lead to the, the confrontation at the end. Um, so verse 1 through 7, if you have it in front of you, um, there's this hiring of the first to the last. Um, and so we sort of, as we're all familiar with stories, enough to know what's happening right away. Uh, the, the landowner goes out early in the morning. He hires his first workers for the vineyard. He agrees to pay them what, they, what he's going to pay them, and he sends them out. And then right away, okay, here's the cue. We know the sequence is coming. About 9, he went back out again, and he saw more people. And now you're, you're already thinking, okay, it's probably going to be a couple trips out. Um, he's progressing up to find more and more workers. Um, and, and eventually, he, about 5 in the afternoon, it says in verse 6, he goes out again. Um, and he finds still more people standing around. He asks them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Uh, and, and he says, because they, they say, because no one has hired us. Now, there's, there's, you can decide that no one has, they haven't been hired because they're not hireable, right? Maybe they just don't look like very good workers. Um, and, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll allow that for you. But the, par- the parable doesn't really tell us that's why. Um, it may be just because they haven't been hired yet. And it's not about they have less value than the other workers. So ancient world, the hiring practices are a little bit different. Um, it's mass unemployment. And if you're looking for work, you're kind of at the mercy of anybody who can give you a job. So I, I don't think we're supposed to read into this. They were left there and not hired because, I don't know, maybe they, their clothes were shabby or they looked lazy or maybe they were taking a nap on the sidewalk, you know, when the, when the, uh, the hiring came about. Um, but, so we, we get this progression, right? Hiring, first, first round, second round, third round. We get to these last hired workers. Um, and so, so, but we're left then with the expectation that that sequence is going to lead us somewhere, right? Why, why would the parable describe in detail the hiring process? Why not just say an employer hired a bunch of workers throughout the day? Um, so, so we're going somewhere with this progression, and that, so that first one, the hiring, leads us to a second progression, and that's the payment. Um, so in verse 8, uh, the evening comes, the owner of the vineyard uh, calls. He, he, he says to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Uh, and then this, this eccentric employer, which um, one of the commentators suggests, that's the correct title for this parable, uh, the eccentric employer, which I rather like. Uh, he kind of has an idea. It seems like he's got kind of a, a funny idea. Let me just, like, let, let me do something that's, going to rock the boat a little bit. Let's pay them, beginning with the last ones first and then going on to the first ones hired. So payment comes in reverse order. Uh, The workers were hired for about five, were paid first, um, and then the last hired um, uh, are paid. Um, 
Right, I'm sorry, I just got that wrong, and I was, I'm getting the, <laughs> maybe you were tracking with me. That's actually not the way it goes, right? I'm getting a lot of the first and the last mixed up here, so let's make sure we get it right. Uh, so <laughs> follow with me, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first, right? So the, the last ones who are hired are paid first, the first ones who are hired are paid last. Are you with me? Okay, because I'm not totally with myself, so it's good. <laughs> all right, good. Yes, okay, good, good. Um, all right, I knew something was wrong. So, uh, and so, because the point is, the way it's told, right, and here's why it's told that way, is that our, our attention is to be fixed on those last hired. Uh, I'm sorry, those last paid. Maybe this is going to be a theme here, so you're going to have to follow with me. Um, uh, and, and so there is a sense in which, that, like the camera, if this is shot as a movie, we're left with those who are, who are disappointed, right? The expectation is built up uh, that, that they're going to be paid potentially more, but they're not. Uh, you can sort of see the drooping shoulders. Um, and by the end, right, I love this little scene at the end. You can imagine if you've ever been with a group of disgruntled friends, right? Um, I can remember as a teenager... Uh, Paying for something at a at a 7-Eleven, but um, not getting correct change back, and then going outside the 7-Eleven with my friends and being like, "So are we going to go in and like confront this guy and get our money back? Can we work up the courage to do that?" You know, um, and most of the time it was no, I, I didn't have the courage. But but that's what I imagine that these group of workers kind of get together um, and they elect a spokesperson uh, to confront the uh, the employer. And in verse 12, this is what we hear. Uh, th- this is their confrontation with the employer. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us. So mark that. That's quite a thing to say. To us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Um, and if you're like me, you're, you're at this point, you're identifying with that complaint. Uh, you're identifying with the fact that, yeah, it seems wrong. You, you seem to have gypped the, uh, those who worked hard through the day. Uh, we, we are hardwired to hunt for injustices like this, aren't we? Uh, as a former teacher, this was 99% of my job, was dealing with perceived injustices um, with sixth graders. But also, like, if you, if you think, of, I don't know, has, has anybody aware that the 95 reconstruction is now has a live stream camera on it? Has anybody seen this? Yeah, so, you know, go for a minute and then quickly close that browser, that, that tab. But the 95 construction, in the interest of sort of open, like, hey, we're doing this honestly. We want the community to know that, you know, your tax dollars at work, blah, 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 all that stuff. Live stream all the time. You can see the construction. What, what, what of course, has happened is that people have been capturing moments of construction workers not using their time uh, in the best way. And so it's just become like a hunt for injustice, Right. Can you believe the way, how long it took these guys to get the truck backed up and filled up with dirt? Just, just, you know, we're hardwired to look for this. This is what most of the internet is about, I I think, uh, looking for these kinds of injustices. So so you're with these guys, their injustice that they're experiencing. Um, And then here's the the employer's response. But he answered one of them, verse 13, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And now our justice balances were like, well, yeah, it's a fair point. Um, or are you envious because I am generous? 
Are you envious because I am generous? So, so where's the heat? I talked about the heat of grace. Um, there's a collision between these employees' sense of fairness and the employer's lavish generosity. Uh, the workers first hired came to the end of their shift with an understanding, with an understanding, right? Look in their words, with an understanding that they, those people who are hired after us, are not equal to us. And maybe you've ended a, a shift of work and had that same feeling about some of your fellow employees. I am higher than them, they are less than me. We deserve more, they deserve less, but we certainly don't deserve the same. Um, and so what, what, what's going on there? It's something that's also true about us that throughout our days, um, throughout their day, their work day, we, we keep ledgers, right? We keep accounts of these things. We, we have an ongoing, the human heart has an internal counting system, accounting system, um, a kind of a story that assesses our value against everybody else's. Um, and, and these little notes that we keep about other people, these little scraps of moments, these assessments, um, we record them, and, and by them, then, we move up or down the ladder, right? We talked a little bit about this last week, moving up or down, above or below people. Uh, and you see this, like, in the finer points of their, the workers' complaint. Did you notice the two things they added on? They didn't just talk about the fact that they got hired first. Did you notice the two little extra details they added um, in verse 12? We, we bore the burden of the work. And then, I love this little extra thing, uh, in the heat of the day, right? They're like, you know, it wasn't just that we worked the most. We did the mo- we, we, we bore the burden of the work, and then it was hot out, right, at the hottest part of the day. Two little extra details, two little extra notes in their accounting. Um, I had this, the, the same sort of event occur to me, uh, happened to me when I, um, I was, I was once a, a Starbucks shift lead, which I say very proudly. Um, I w- was a, a barista and got promoted up the chain of shift lead. It was wonderful. Um, so I was a barista in charge of baristas, if you can imagine. Uh, and what my, my shift at Starbucks was I was the opening shift. So it's a, it's a 5 a.m. call in, right, to start, because you're opening at 6. Um, and if you, as you can imagine, uh, you know, that hour between 5 and 6 a.m., uh, is critical because at 6 a.m., people are coming in with that Starbucks expectation. You know what I'm saying? They're like ready for their morning routine. It's a critical moment. And I had, I opened, it's a two-person shift, right? You open with two people, partly because it's really hard to get three people to come in at 5 a.m. But um, it was me and this other girl, and she was consistently 45 minutes late for like uh, two weeks until she was no longer employed there. But during those, that, those two weeks, um, I bear the brunt of that open, right? Um, now, what happens, of course, is that we both worked until noon, so it's a 5 a.m. to noon shift. Um, and by the end of it, our manager would always, like, who was a super pumped-up guy, he would always hand out high fives and celebrate, like, you guys killed it today, look how much we did in sales, high five, high five, like, great job, great job. And, of course, what am I doing? Those high fives are kind of bitter, right? Right? Like, yeah, but she didn't help me at 5, from 5 to 5.45, right? Um, it, there was this ledger that I had that built throughout the day as I looked at all the, the prep, as I looked at the coffee prep, um, as I looked at all the ways, that, that then every success that we had then got earmarked as something that she didn't have equal rights to, right? Um, she really wasn't worthy of that 
manager high five. Um, and so it was kind of bitter for me. Um, so, so I experienced this pain, right? Because what I was saying is the same thing as these employees were saying. She was not equal to me. And yet this manager had the audacity to make us equal to one another. Uh, there, there's, there's some pain that happens when you possess evidence to the contrary that, that you are equal with others. Now, my manager did it out of ignorance because I didn't tell him right away what was going on. I was trying to help her out. Bad mistake. I made a mistake there. But, but he did it out of ignorance. This, this owner, this, uh, this landowner, this employer is doing it intentionally. He's intentionally, maybe even sort of delightfully it seems, he's making people who are less equal. So, so grace offends our ledgers. Um, this is the heat of grace. Why? Because, because what is grace? Grace is a gift. Grace is the unconditional love of God for those who don't deserve it. And grace is personified by this eccentric employer um, who invites us into this, this, this confrontation. He says, he says, either clutch your ledgers that you're tracking your worth and your value or, or chuck them into the fire of his generosity. Clutch, hold on to it. You can track every, every up and down. You move up and down with others. Or you can chuck that ledger into the fire of God's generosity. Um, and that might seem like an easy choice, but I, I, just, I, I just want you to consider how deeply rooted our ledger keeping is. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe it's come out for you in thinking about your job and the way you relate to other people. Um, I'll just give you another quick example. I, I had a quick meeting with somebody this week. Not, not, none of, I'm not speaking about any of you. Um, and I happened to be wearing a new piece of clothing that I had just gotten. And, and I, um, so that, that'll be relevant in a minute. I, I, um, I just had this quick conversation with this person. And I left that conversation feeling quite good about myself. And, and I realized that the reason I felt good about myself leaving the conversation was because I had done, in about 30 seconds, an assessment of his clothing versus mine, and I left feeling better than he was. Um, and, and that was the essence of the conversation for me. And I just thought, one, like I had to laugh at myself, but I also felt like, like just how thin and, and, thin and, and sad the, the habits of my heart that, that I use to elevate myself over other people. I mean, over a mere new hoodie, I, I diminished somebody um, because their clothing just seemed less than I am. And, and I just raise that as because we do this all day, every day. We, we are a life by our ledgers. And I had unbeknownst to me in the back of my mind before that meeting, that, that piece of clothing had just, I had moved my account up a couple steps. At a deep level, we're all looking for footing in life. We have to know that our lives are worth something. So much so that, that I will say to myself, all I've got in this miserable life is that I know I'm not as bad as that pathetic slob over there. I mean, that was what my heart told me, if, if I'm honest. And that's, that's how sort of petty and sad our hearts can be. So I just, I just offer that to you. What is keeping you upright this morning? Perhaps it's your job this week. Maybe, maybe you've been resting on your education for 30 years. 
Um, maybe it's the car you drove here. Maybe it's the fact that you're here and you know that lots of people aren't coming to church anymore. Um, maybe it's how much you prayed this week. Maybe you are right now wearing a nice piece of clothing that kind of just propped you up over other people this morning. Maybe it's that you did more work to help the family get out the door this morning than someone else. Uh, we are all keeping our ledgers. And so the heat of grace is, is a fire of his generosity against the stubborn pages of your carefully kept ledger. And that's, but that's life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom is life with God that means that not a single shred of your labor can earn you more or less. Your efforts of earning, your accounts of all these efforts have no trade value with God. And so I, I just thought, you know, I started off with the question, life of grace, yet I seem, so, I seem to be filled with such difficulty and, and sometimes depression and anxiety. And I just want to offer this to you that it's possible for you, and I would just invite you to search your heart on this, to confuse pain and anxiety and depression with the displeasure of seeing what you thought were gains in your life be consumed by the fire of grace. I'll just say that again. You, you might be anxious and sad and feeling like grace isn't working for you because what you're actually experiencing is the fire of grace taking hold of all the accounting that you have for most of your life used to prop you up. And it is like watching something precious burned in a fire. But that fire, brothers and sisters, is grace. The offense of living in a kingdom in which a king shows no partiality. He is simply lavishly generous with each of us. So that's, that's the fire, that's the heat of grace from this parable. Um, and, then, and then quickly, the light, the light of grace um, in this passage is that, is that I hope, and I hope you're already getting a little glimpse of this, is that it, what the light of grace does is in this particular passage um, is is it reveals to us the misery of living by that ledger. It, it shows us. It helps us see, oh, this, this ledger is a source of misery in my life. Um, and I'll just give you one example. Uh, and it's, if you look at the way that the workers related to each other, just complete joylessness, right? The inability to have joy for somebody else. You relate to others by a system of sort of ascending and descending value, um, and the workers at the end who worked a full day have no pleasure in the work they did because they're just bitter. They just miss out on the joy. And God's generosity turns out to be a source of envy and indignance for them. So I've, uh, I'll just share with you, I've been asking for people in my life to pray that I would have joy in my life. And a couple of you have confronted me about the, in a good way. I said, hey, maybe you could insert some more joy into your preaching. <laughs> um, which uh, in the middle of this sermon feels like an apt criticism. But, but what I've realized in, in, um, in, uh, in praying through that and praying through this passage is that th this is actually, what, joy isn't something you grow, it's something that's revealed to you. It's something that the light of grace shows you, right? Um, and so what I'm finding as I've, as I've thought about this is I have a lot more joy in relationship when I stop trying to compete with other people, you know? When my, my standing, my, my meaning in life doesn't come at the cost of other people. So, so the light of grace here is that when you move off the ledger, 
you can, you're free to then have joy in the people around you. You're free to have joy in relationship. So that's the, that's the heat, that's the light. And I just want to then just, let's just bring it, bring it to a close. What, these, these can seem sort of abstract. You might say that's great, like heat, light, grace. These sort of are all floating maybe a little bit. Um, the groundwork that Jesus is laying for his disciples in this parable, let's not forget, um, He's not trying to help them understand the philosophical idea of grace or like some abstract idea. He's on his way to the cross. That's what we're going to see in the next few chapters. Um, He desires that they understand what the cross means that that he's heading toward. Um, And that's where where the heat and light of grace um, are located. They're located, brothers and sisters, at the cross. Um, The cross is the most lavish act of, his, of this eccentric God. It utterly blows apart all our categories. The columns of our ledgers have no space to hold the death of Christ. So, so the cross then is where we bring our ledgers to the fire, right? At the foot of the cross. Uh, it's where First uh, Corinthians tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is where we go when we first encounter Christ and it is there that we can return daily, moment by moment, bringing ourselves before the gift of his life for us. And there he takes on in himself and consumes. He consumes as a fire and has victory over all the ways that we attempt to make a life for ourselves by earning it rather than receiving it. So we go to the cross, brothers and sisters. That's where the fire, that's where the heat of his grace comes. That's where the light of his grace comes from. And so just, just a challenge for you and then for us as a community as we, as we close. Um, you, you might be thinking then, where does that leave me? Uh, where, where does a life sort of off book, off ledger take me? Uh, it's a legitimate question to say like, if if nothing I do or don't do, if none of my suffering or sin can further earn me more or less of God's grace, then why do anything at all? I think that's actually the question you should ask yourself. If, if grace is a free gift of God and I can't earn more of his favor or less of his favor, then why do anything at all? Um, I want you to actually contemplate that that, God bless you, that prayer um, this week. Why am I doing all the things that I'm doing? What am I so busy about? And a lot of those things are, I'm not telling you you're going to stop doing all those things, but in light of the grace of God, what, what am I up to in life? Uh, let me just, as you contemplate that, let me just add one important part of that thought. Um, one sort of important element to the scene that I'm trying to paint for you, uh, if you're, 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 you're burning, your ledger is in the fire at the foot of the cross, um, but, but there with you, what you gain as you throw that ledger into the fire is that you gain Christ. You do not gain some abstract idea of grace. Grace does not exist apart from Christ. Um, you're never separate from him. So as you stand at the foot of the cross, your ledger's in the fire, Christ is with you. 
Philippians 3 says, this is Paul. Paul, you can go back and read Philippians 3. Paul's all about the ledger, right? He's got an accounting system that far surpasses all of ours. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, right? He's using ledger language. For the, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. Why? So that I may gain, not grace, that I may gain Christ who gives me grace, right? I may gain Christ. So this week, consider this question. You're not alone, but with Christ. Um, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to give you the question in a couple, two more different ways, right? And then I'm just going to give you a minute to just consider it. Because I've said a lot of words. So, so just two other ways you can think about that question. Um, what will you do with the freedom you have in Christ? Christ has set you free from a life of ledger. What will you do with that freedom? Or right, here's another way to say it. How do I live if I no longer have the comfort of merit and demerit? What will you do with the freedom you have in Christ? I just, just want to give you a moment. Would you just quietly just bring that before the Lord? Ponder that in your heart. What will you do with the freedom you have in Christ? And lastly, um, as you ponder that, uh, for us, so, so, so move from thinking I to, to we. Um, what does this mean for us? Uh, here's, a, here's a question, a piercing question for us to consider. It's the last words. It's the piercing question of the, of the employer. He says, are you envious because I am generous? So this is a we question. Um, what well, well, we need to realize, brothers and sisters, um, as, as, as the people of God, as a gathering of God's people, um, that the edges of the kingdom of heaven are not like the squalor of Gotham City. <laughs> we often imagine it's, it's sort of a Gotham City scene at the edges of, of the kingdom of heaven. But what this parable shows us is actually at the edges of the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's more like religious people, religious people like us, through gnashing of teeth, who are guarding the door to the party that the generous host is throwing. That's, that's, that's what's being presented to us this morning through this parable. Where, where are we envious of God's generosity to others? Where are we guarding the door from people saying, no, you, you, you're not equal to us. You don't belong. Perhaps we're doing it within our community. Perhaps we're doing it on the edges of our community. Um, this is the, uh, the, the, 
the conviction with which Barbara Brown Taylor writes in that quote you have, the problem many people in need, of, uh, the problem is many people, many of the people in need, excuse me, of saving are in churches. And at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. Uh, who is God generous toward that makes us envious? Who makes you recoil at being made equal to? Uh, who's the category of person that there are people in my life who I'm kind of angry at the idea that God would be generous toward them? Like there's people I know in my family history, there's people who have done things that just, like I have a clenched fist, like God, not, not that person, not that kind of person, right? And what this, this is, what we, I need to hear is that challenge who am I envious about that God is generous toward? What category of person? What, what, um, what background? What political position says not that person? What, uh, what gender? Right? Um, what sexual orientation? Do you say God can't be generous toward? What degree of education? Do you say God can't be generous toward somebody who doesn't have that level of education? What, what age? Maybe there's an age group you're like, you know what, at some point, they, they just need to fade out or be quiet. <laughs> They're not worthy of God's generosity. Maybe there's people that you just, they haven't done enough, not enough deeds done for the kingdom. Imagine if we became the kind of people that were able to see and reflect the eccentricity of God in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, and, and in this body. It's a, it's a hard word, brothers and sisters, it's a, it, but we need to receive that, that question. Who are we envious that God is generous toward? Who are we keeping out of the grace of God? Uh, can we end? Can I invite you to, to, um, to a confession together? Um, I'm going to lead us in it, um, and then there's, there's portions for you to read as we reflect on this, and then we'll sing and um, and close. I, I would just invite you either to, to, to say them aloud or, or to contemplate these words in your own heart. Um, if you're not there yet, right, um, I'm not inviting you to say something that's not, that's not true for you yet. Um, but this could be a way as you, as you ponder these words um, for us to close together. This is a, a confession written by Barbara Duguid in her work Prone to Wonder. Um, so I just invite you to, to read this with me. The worship team can come for. Actually, you know what? I want you to be able to see the words and not have to strain. So we'll do the confession and then, then you guys can come on up. Um, together. So if you put that, that up there, that'd be great, Adriel. Great. Um, so let, let's, let's confess in light of the scripture together. A loving Heavenly Father, you alone are the creator and sustainer of all things. You love us with better love than any we could ever know here on earth. And we stand in awe of your power and commitment to cherish us. Let's read this together. jobs and our good health and our economic value and our academic abilities. We even place our hope in spiritual disciplines, thinking that we will merit more favor from you if we deny ourselves, pray constantly, or sacrifice for you and for others. 
Father, we are worshipers of ourselves and we find our hearts full of anxiety and depression when we discover that we cannot save ourselves in any way. Holy Spirit, teach us to be still and to know that you are God and we are not. Please give us true grief for the many ways we sin against you and fill us with the repentance and hope in you. Open our blinded eyes to see clearly your faithfulness and power, your great love and unending patience, your relentless determination to pursue us, to captivate us and ravish us with the truth of the gospel. Amen. I invite the worship team to come forward. Um, Lord, we want to we want to sing this closing song um, knowing, having confessed our sins, Lord, that you assure us of pardon. Uh, so, Lord, we, we pray that as we sing and as we contemplate these questions this week, uh, would you give us great joy knowing that we are free from a life based on accounting and ledger. We are free to, to live a life, a life that says we walk with you, Lord, through all things. You are with us. You alone give us meaning and purpose. So, Lord, would you settle that in our heart now um, as we sing and we praise you. Assure us of what is true now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.